thank you, Jody. That was um, that was really nice, and it's always great to hear uh, when someone else finds some commonality in your stories that you never knew existed. So, and when Jody was talking about Ray and Alice, I was thinking, who are those people? I don't know. <laughs> those aren't even people I recognize. So, you know, once you write the story, they're sort of they're done. They're out of your life. Um, so I have to say, the minute I stepped onto this campus, I guess I thought I can only stay a week. That was sort of my first feeling. So I can t already tell that this is a fabulous place and a wonderful, you know, wonderful group of people. And I'm looking forward to hearing, reading a lot of great writing and seeing a lot of great art and um, taking some walks with some of you and just really getting to know some of you. So as Jody said, this is an inaugural story. So this is its virginal run. Um, so yes, is that better? Okay, so this is a little, this is, the, this is a word list and we're gonna read it together, a little sort of interactive piece. And I'll, I'll let you know when it's time to do that. I don't know if you can see back there because it's a little dark. So this story is called The Pain Form and each of these sections has a, has a, a header, which obviously you can't see, but I'll, I'll, I hope to indicate when those come up. Okay. The Pain Form. Intensity, and then in parentheses, patient rates the pain. Sometimes it's a razor blade hidden in an apple, or a salty thumb jam jammed into an open sore, or terror's lacerations that wake me in the middle of the night. Sometimes it's the rising sap of my own cruel nature that tastes like hot sauce, blood, and my lousy self all at once. Then again, not always so dramatic. It's a paper cut from the magazine subscription card, a pimple on the soft triangle, triangle of my nose, a stain on my white shirt from the fumbled raspberry. The pain doctor's waiting room is as generically soothing as its seascape paintings in driftwood frames. That is, not soothing at all, but an irritating incitement to wonder what the plump white seagull affixed to the sky is supposed to make those in pain feel. Hopelessly flightless, maybe. The room is filled with the kind of thick-legged chairs you see only in medical offices, as though each seat, like each patient, is suffering from some dysfunction. The fish in the tank swing, swim too deeply, but imagine what they have to look at. People who stare back at them, wishing they were edible or transmutable, and after hours, the pure darkness of the deserted room. I'd rather look at the couple sitting across from me, the only other people here. They were already seated when I came in for the this, this same first appointment of the day they are apparently also booked for and gave my name to the receptionist. On this downpour of an August morning, the man is wearing cargo shorts, exposing ankles and calves that are swollen to the size of loaves of Wonder Bread and feet stuffed into graying sneakers. His expression is stunned and suspicious. Pain is likely only one of his problems. His wife looks equally abandoned by her normal self. Her reference point for normal is mid-30s when she is 62 now. Though it's not her body that's gone on a psychotic bender, it's her capacity for compassion. She examines her husband who is bent over as he stares at the fish tank and coaxes himself out loud. He does this at home when he doesn't think she can hear, but she always does. 
This morning they were up hours before this 8 a.m. appointment as though being eager and dressed would win them points toward the purchase of good news. She remembers how he'd intoned instructions when he sat on the bed, sneakers on the floor, challenging him. Take a deep breath, you prick, you idiot, he'd said. In the end, she'd had to tie his Nikes for him, but she did it, all maternal muscle all maternal muscle and marriage memory while she looked out the window at the rain. I don't know these people, but they don't stop me. That doesn't stop me from telling a story about them. They are my plump seagull affixed in my horizon, flightless. The wife understands why he talks to himself this way, but it only makes things worse for her when he does because he inadvertently gives her the vocabulary of disparagement before she's had to come to it on her own. She loves him, but he can be a son of a bitch. She plucks at the elastic waistband of her pants. A friend of hers had a cyst the size of a grapefruit removed from her belly. Like giving birth, her friend had said, stopping by on her bicycle a month later to pat her flatter stomach and manically admire the rhododendrons. The man's wife had pictured the cyst not as a grapefruit, but like that baby panda just born at the zoo, a translucent ghostly white discharge with four legs and a head and a black spot of nose. She suspects her friend on the bike is the type to die soon of some other less benign extraction, while she imagines privately that she'll live to be 100. You sorry piece of shit, her husband whispers now. He swears at himself when he's in pain because who else is he going to be angry at? She looks down at the form he's supposed to be filling out. Patient rates the pain? Better that the wife rates the pain, she thinks, because she's the one who has to witness it, live with it, accommodate it like it's a despotic houseguest. She's the one who knows its voracious appetite for chaos. And she's the one who knows when the storm of his pain is approaching because he gets glassy-eyed and freezes. He's like a battered wife, resigned to the inevitable blow, unable to extricate himself. Last night at dinner, they talked about what to do with the cat, but she could see he was practically hallucinatory with pain and imagining his chicken breast and roasted carrots humping on the plate. The ancient cat had taken to shitting behind the couch in the basement. It took them too long to discover the arsenal of dried turds. There's something wrong with her, her husband had said, and she knew he was thinking about all his beloved cats that had come and gone before this one, a full roster of feline grief. We should get an aquarium, he says to her now. I've always wanted one. No, you haven't, she says. You hate fish. True, he says. He taps her knee in appreciation of her practicality. He knows she will not give into mawkishness just because he's in pain. Neither will my husband, but he won't come to these appointments with me. As the black molly in the tank shows a little spunk and suddenly ditches her anodonic, watery kin, he thinks about how he stepped out on his wife once, more than a decade ago, and for the moment in, the d in this desperate waiting room, he is unexpectedly clear of remorse. His face lifts, the shadows in his stubble disperse, his pain recedes. He doesn't know how or why this has happened today, but his tank has been cleaned. What a goddamn relief, his eyes are bright. Patient rates the pain now. 
gone, wowza, a miracle. But wait, not so fast. It will come slamming back. He remembers with unfettered pleasure the pure, silky brilliance of the lies he told his wife and son so he could fuck another woman. He was a genius back then, a top-notch operative, and no boasting his dick was like a shovel handle. He won't deny how incredible the whole episode was. He'd had no pain back then and took the cheap hotel stairs two by two up to the fifth floor. There'd been an aquarium in the hotel lobby lit by the nearby vending machines, and now he remembers watching the woman watch the fish circle the tiny drowned scuba diver in a way that told him the end of what they were doing was near. He doesn't see his pain as some kind of retribution, but his wife sees it just like that, and in one of those perfect moments of marital mind-reading and mind-melding, she knows exactly what he's thinking about. It's not what he did that stabs at her, at her anymore. It's that he's thinking about it now, remembering the pleasure he never paid for as they wait and she fills out the form for him and as she went down on her fucking hands and knees to tie his sneakers earlier. The clipboard slides off her lap and onto the floor. We need to put the cat to sleep, her husband says, putting a hand on her back as she bends to retrieve the clipboard. She's suffering. I'll call the vet when we get home, she says, slow to sit up. Okay, so now we have our little interactive reading. And we're going to read this list together. So this is the scale used to rate pain, the poetry of a pain vocabulary. Ready? Okay, pinching, pressing, gnawing, cramping, crushing, tugging, pulling, wrenching, scalding, searing, tingling, itchy, smarting, stinging, dull, sore, aching, heavy, tender, taut, rasping, splitting, exhausting, sickening, suffocating, frightful, terrifying, punishing, grueling, cruel, vicious, killing, wretched, blinding, intense, unbearable, spreading, radiating, penetrating, piercing, tight, numb, drawing, squeezing, tearing, cold, freezing, nagging, nauseating, agonizing, dreadful, torturing. Another scale? The one the woman at the fish store puts her finger on when she weighs my tilapia. It infuriates my husband when I tell him this, but I let her keep the extra 11 or 20 cents, and so what? I don't want to humiliate her. Some cheating, mine for instance, is about greed and destruction, but hers isn't. It's about recompense and sway. Her lover left her one night when they were in Key West to go back to her husband. She is now plagued by rosacea, so that she looks half in the bag at 10 in the morning, her latex gloves winking with fish scales. And one more scale. Some use pictograms to communicate pain levels. Primitive line drawings of happy faces, sad faces, and everything in between, like a kind of nightmare party you can't leave. Mr. Hertz Worst, looks like my husband, has a column of tears flowing from each eye. Ms. Today is okay, looks unconvinced. Mr. Radiating might be married to, or maybe just banging Ms. Grueling, or fooling around with Mr. Squeezing, and who could say which one is better at communicating their true feelings about this unsatisfactory arrangement? 
The happy face is euphoric, but I've never looked like that, not even in my happiest moments. A boy in high school took me aside one afternoon to tell me I wasn't good looking. He was doing me a favor as a friend, he said, so I didn't have any delusions about myself going forward. I'd never considered him a friend. He grew up to make money by putting happy faces on suspenders and socks and boxer shorts. I spotted him in his happy face suspenders once on a street in New York, and I thought, they are upside down, you shitmonger. <laughs> Before we could drive ourselves to school, this boy and I were in the same carpool. One morning, this was months after he'd offered his benediction on my appearance, the driver, a mother of another kid who refused to sit in the front seat with her, so I did, saw this future smiley-faced tycoon on the far corner where she always picked him up. But on this day, he was jumping frantically and waving his arms, his face a blur of urgency. She sped through the stop sign because she thought something was wrong and we were hit by a car from the left and a car from the right. An old man was sent to the hospital with two broken occipital bones and a shattered jaw and me with a shattered right leg. The boy had just been joking around, goofing off, he'd admitted, but I'm not sure he ever understood that he was entirely at fault. I like to think of him now, a stumpy man with clothes that try too hard and an embarrassing soul patch that collects crumbs without him knowing it, feeling the nag of terrible unfinished business when he wakes every morning. He is a jocular and sad fool. His kids ignore him and his girlfriends half his age leave him. Present pain. Mine is here with enough suitcases for a round-the-world cruise, claiming my shattered and pinned leg as its first-class cabin and waiting imperiously for room service. Mine is like a decapitated ra rattlesnake that manages to bite its own body. Mine is like the woman who recently slashed a Liechtenstein painting in an Austrian museum, who hated nudes so much they made the pain in her fe head feel like a screwdriver, which she also had in her bag along with a knife, was jammed into her temple. Mine is like the man with the bready ankles who is now out of his chair and crouched in front of the aquarium tapping at the glass, irritating his wife who doesn't like that his butt crack is visible. Six years ago, he gave her as a birthday present an attachment to the vacuum cleaner. He thought she'd immediately get that it was a joke. She did and she didn't. Even Freud knew that jokes were packed with hostility. For his birthday two months later, she got him a white plastic stool he could use when he showered. He immediately thought it was a joke, but it wasn't. I'm only 56, he'd said to her. He was healthy then and held the stool in one hand to show her it was lightweight, it was nothing, it was insignificant junk. He threw it down the basement stairs. He was so hurt by the present that he could barely breathe. Sooner or later, you'll want to sit, she'd said. Their son, who'd come over a few days later, had yelled up from the basement where he'd gone to look for the camping stove he thought he'd stored on a shelf. What's up with the stool? His daughter had been born only three months before, and already he had a strong urge to sleep out under the stars, away from his anxious wife and wailing child. Worse pain gets, A, patient rates the pain. When we were 13, my cousin and I took the long, overgrown path down from the rented house to the beach one July evening. 
A lazy darkness was in the distance, and we sat on the sand, picking at our toes, mocking our parents, melting into a glorious boredom. The sky's colors were the pinks and oranges of our shorts and tank tops, and the air smelled of fish picked clean of flesh. Maybe we already knew that the night would be something we would remember when the two figures walking out on the sandbar revealed by the low tide began to angle up toward us. The change in their strides, the way their heads came together in collusion and then apart alerted me to something. Men, I must have always been scared of them. One of them called friendly, hey there girls, what are you doing? We stood. I was afraid of appearing afraid when there was nothing to fear. Being overly dramatic and prissy would make me into the kind of dirt girl I disdained. The men continued up the beach, their smirks and ruddy faces visible. Salt flooded my mouth as if they'd already drowned me in the bay. They wore long pants which made them suspect, as though ending up on the beach hadn't been planned for at all. I knew that if there were ever a moment in my life when I had to run, this was it. So we ran, but running on sand is exactly how it seems in your dreams. Huge effort, not much result. And I was laughing, breath hovering at my mouth, but never entering my lungs. My cousin was ahead of me. God, I hope neither of us tripped. The men pushed through the beginning of the overhung path. I saw them part the vines. I heard them say, wait, and why are you running? And we just want to ask you something. There were thorns in my feet, the vines tore, and the bark of locust trees sca scraped, and my cousin and I fell onto the house deck, winded, shaking, tiny spots of blood on our bare legs. As the light hovered between shadowed and gone, I saw the men stopped at the mouth of the path. I knew they were there. I knew they weren't there. I felt the insubstantiate insubstantiality of my existence, the breakable architecture of my body, and I was still laughing. I couldn't stop. Is fear another kind of pain? Best pain gets. Inside that beach house, our parents were drinking, were close to drunk. What's so funny, one of them called out to us still on the deck. Piss had run down the inside of my legs. I kept one hand on the screen door ready to open it, I already worried that this night would make me afraid my whole life. We didn't go inside. We didn't tell the adults. We feared their overreaction as much as their underreaction. And what if the men just wanted to know what time it was or where they could get good fried clams on this part of the Cape, though we were two girls and no one asked girls for information or advice about anything. We were left alone those years while our parents held their breath and sipped their drinks, not knowing what to do with girls until girls no knew what to do with themselves. Worst pain gets, B. The man across from me now who says he wants an aquarium, but clearly by the way he's tapping at the glass, hates fish, who doesn't mind that his ass crack is exposed, tells himself again that pain is pain, it doesn't have a vengeful soul. Pain probably doesn't even know its own nature, he thinks, as dumb as a fat cat. Something about the morning, the weather, the fish makes him miss his son, who is alive and mostly well, though still a little off, with an intensity that makes his chest burn like he's just run up a hill. The worst pain is betrayal. My husband knows this, and I can tell when he's dragged it out from behind the curtain to perform privately for him. 
when he needs to feel the anguish of my disloyalty again. The wife of the man also knows this. All the novels and all the movies, all those betrayed women, sorry, no men allowed, declaring that I will not, goddammit, lower my voice, will not, goddammit, stop making a scene, being unreasonable, paranoid, demonic. Those are our models of fortitude and self-respect. But all this woman ever asked was to know everything her husband did with his lady friend, how many times they fucked, in what positions, and for how long, and he wouldn't tell her. She had no interest in making a scene. I don't want to hurt you, he'd explained, his cowardliness driving her to smash plates against the garage wall. At a party last month, I met a woman, nice-looking in a recessed way. Her pink silk scarf suggested that she was thinking of giving up on the quest for romance, but she wasn't quite ready to withdraw completely. After all, here she was at a party, and even as kids we understand that parties are really only about possibility and hope, which is why we keep going to them and why we are so often disappointed. My story is a total cliche, she apologized. Eighteen months ago, my husband left me for a young associate after decades of marriage and four children. Blah, 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 she said, and sipped her wine. Her smile asked me to forgive her for being unoriginal. Her dutifulness as a wife was not anti-feminist. In fact, she said she was even a greater feminist than her friends because her dutifulness had been her choice, which made it not a duty at all, but an empowerment. That was her word. She didn't seem entirely convinced by this and bit too hard, down too hard on an olive pit, which she spit into her palm. She hoped she hadn't cracked a tooth because that was all she needed now, thousands of dollars to fix the thing and another sign that she was falling apart tooth by tooth and cell by cell. Maybe I'll give up the whole lot of them and switch to dentures, she said. She left after that, having depressed even herself. I'd noticed that she'd slipped the olive pit into her pocket, and I thought maybe she'd find it again when she was doing the laundry, for one now, and she'd consider how time might wear down the pain, except it wouldn't. She knew that betrayal is one of the pains that doesn't get better. She'd hear the pit clacking around in the dryer, and she'd act like she didn't know what it was, but her tongue would sweep over the crown that had cost her more than she could afford, and soon it would become a tick. Do the following items increase or decrease your pain? Liquor, stimulants such as coffee, eating, heat, cold, damp, weather changes, massage or use of a vibrator, pressure, no movement, movement, sleep or rest, lying down, distraction, in parentheses, TV, reading, etc., urination or defecation, tension, bright lights, loud noises, going to work, intercourse, mild exercise, fatigue, wait, Aren't intercourse and mild exercise the same thing? <laughs> Quality. For example, ache, deep, sharp, hot, cold, like sensitive skin, itchy. When we were first married, my husband and I rented a rototiller from a place that also rented giant TVs and recliners and karaoke machines. It was an elegant thing, blades like medieval instruments of torture, or a beautifully severe flower arrangement, and it tore up the neglected yard, turning over the lead-infested soil. The house had been built in 1895 for a reverend, so I expected to find something interesting in the dirt, broken pottery, silver spoons, a pipe. 
I, might, I must also have pictured that reverend in a white nightshirt bearing his belongings in the moonlight. Those blades run up and down my leg, raking furrows in my skin, long wounds in the earth of me, ready for planting. I imagine a sweet little girl coming by with her napkin-covered basket. She's a little creeped out to find herself in this fairy tale. What's in the basket? Not low-fat blueberry muffins, not a bagel from the day-old rack, but road salt, oily gray crystals of the stuff which she generously sprinkles down the furrows and tamps down with her thumb. The flesh absorbs the chemicals, curls obscenely like apple slices left out in the sun. The waiting room is tense now. The doctor we've all surmised like do docile children is running late. Onset, duration, variations, rhythms. I have inherited from my mother an intractable fear of parking garages. I see her clasping the wheel of the station wagon decades ago as we leave the garage. We've gone to school, do some school shopping. I hold the bag on my lap, but I hate what's in it. My mother forced me to get the boy's winter coat that is blue, boxy, and way too big, but which she says I'll grow into, and why waste money on a coat you'll just grow out of? It hides my body, and at 14, I am fully aware that this is her motive. I feel ugly and miserable, boiling with rage and impassivity, furious that she announced to the saleswoman that nothing fit in the girls' section, and where is the boys' husky department, please? I vow that I will never be like her, never cruel, but in our fear of parking garages, we are the same. She asks me which way the exit is, and though it's clearly marked with arrows, she goes the wrong way at each turn. She's flustered, she won't listen, tells me to shush, snaps her hand at me. We end up on the very lowest level facing a corner, and we hear men's voices before we see them. Five of them, six, none. A cluster of menace, and my mother is concentrating on getting the hell out of there. I am reminded of a night on the beach the year before, which I never told her about. She yells at me to reach back and lock the doors. She reverses for a second, and I think she's hit one of the men. And already I'm thinking she'll be excused for this. She won't go to prison, but maybe she should, just for a night or two, for making me get that fucking coat. But it's just a speed bump, and soon we're out again and on Storrow Drive, Boston's Charles River, next to Swift next to us. We never talk about those frantic moments, but later I hear that the demise of an upscale shopping mall is being blamed on the fact that women are terrified of parking garages. But it's not parking garages we're afraid of. It's the men we imagine lurking in them. Manner of expressing pain. A woman I know got a call from the police in the foreign city where her husband of many years had gone for work. He'd been found in a hotel room, dead from autoerotic asphyxiation. She'd known nothing about this pastime of his. In fact, she'd never even heard of it until it killed him. Funny, she said, he didn't have much of a sex drive. <laughs> you think his sex drive was low when he was alive, I thought. Try him when he's dead. Jesus, she said, he fucked himself with a rope around his neck. Should I take it personally? Sometimes my pain nibbles. Sometimes it takes big, juicy chunks of me and wanders through the neighborhood with my flesh in its bloody fangs, drool and sinew hanging low like streamers on a little girl's bike. 
Sometimes my pain roams the street at night, looking into windows and turning over garbage cans, painting obscene graffiti on fences, stealing tires off cars parked in driveways, trampling tulips and thin, nascent grass. Sometimes it whispers to my husband just how badly I hurt him. What relieves pain? Not confession, not apology. The truth will not set you free, and talking about it does not make you feel better. I felt worse after confessing to my husband that I'd been screwing another man. So did he. A former boyfriend was not relieved by his telling me how he'd been raped on a subway platform. The man who was crouched in front of the aquarium is now back in his chair. His wife holds his hand as he fumes about how late the doctor is, and I know that this is not a pain to his physical self, but to his psychic self that feels it is being kept waiting under false pretenses, that the doctor is not running late, he's walking late, and only because he's attending to his own business first, emails, a call from the assisted living place where he stores his mother, his workout at the gym, a mole that looks suspicious. What causes or increases the pain? A. My mother tried to convince me out of pain. Don't be sad, she said. Don't be upset. Why not? When I write stories about this battering and shattering and being driven to our knees, people say it's just too much, it's too depressing. Write something funny, they say. My mother did not tell me when her mother, my grandmother, who was slightly famous, died. I was away at college and I read the obituary in the newspaper. I asked her why she hadn't told me and what does it mean that I can't remember what my mother said? What could her answer possibly have been? This to me is very funny stuff. <coughs> Manner of expressing the pain. Cocksucker, the guy with the ankle says. Before that he called the doctor a shit stain. His wife no longer tries to tell him what he should or shouldn't do. Her friends have been telling her forever that what a husband do does is not a reflection on a wife. Let him expose his butt crack. Let him sound like a crank. What's it to you? She would like to believe her friends, but she doesn't, in the same way she didn't believe her husband when he said his screwing another woman had nothing to do with her. But now she doesn't even look up when he marches over to the reception window and stands there glaring at the receptionist on the other side who pretends not to see him. Sometimes she likes to remind herself of the pain he caused her so that she can feel something that is hers alone. She will not share it with him, and this feels wonderfully selfish and right. He's turned from the reception window and is glaring at me as though I am the cause of all the trouble, a grim expression of distrust and hatred. It's startling, chilling, as though he knows all about the stories I've been telling myself about him and his wife but he doesn't know me and I don't know him, though I'm beginning to think that I might. The most I am to him is someone who could get in to see the doctor first. Nice day, I say to him. His wife looks up to see who's spoken. It's a dark purple morning and very hot, even in the office. Sweetie, she says, did we remember to close the upstairs window? Hope so, he says, still looking at me. I am self-conscious about my hair, the penumbra of red frizz, but not my bad leg with its zippers of stitching and scars and akimbo knee bones, which I keep straight out in front of me as I sit like some vestige of honor. We were here first, he says. Does your pain increase over time? 
He turns to his wife and says, Rube, I'm going to the bathroom. Don't let them call anyone else in while I'm gone. He wobbles down the hall on his loaves of bread. I knew a guy whose name, mother's name was Rubily. Saying Rubily over and over is like dumping a, pocket, a packet of Pop Rocks onto your tongue. I once asked him where the name had come from, and he said his grandmother had read it in a novel. He said everyone always assumed his mother was black. Not just a guy, actually. The man I was screwing for a while. Christ, my tank has not been cleared today, clean today. Regret swamps my chest. Look, this is who he was, Joel, a man with a young, nervous daughter and a closed-up wife. He was trying to make a living as an art framer. Thumbtacks and double-sided tape could render him speechless. He was fragile and trapped, which stirred up in me a hunger to devour and spit out someone exactly like myself, but not me. One night a year and a half ago in a restaurant far from where we both lived, when I told him that I wanted to stop what we were doing, Joel fell off his chair, just slid off like he'd lost complete control of his body, like he'd been shot. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Bread from the basket he'd taken with him on the way down was scattered around him. People gawked at him on the floor, his legs straight out as he began to cry, face in palms, big plopping tears. For fuck's sake, I said, get up. There was something poisonous in me, immovable too, as though he always did this kind of thing. And here we were once more in this silly, embarrassing situation. Get up, I said again. I looked around for commiseration and there was none in the room. When Joel didn't move, I left and drove away in the car we'd come in, my car. How did I think he would get home that night? Call his wife to pick him up? Call his father? If I'd been in that restaurant and seen this happen, I would have thought I'd just witnessed the most starkly cruel thing I might ever see in my whole life. And I wouldn't be able to stop wondering what eventually happened to those people, that pathetic man, that stony-faced bitch with the messed-up leg. A woman enters the waiting room now and moves to the check-in window, insurance card already in hand. She's flustered, expensively dressed, and soaking. Her hip bones press against wet denim. The receptionist slides open her glass window with ceremonial languor, and the woman explains that the reason she's late is that she couldn't find a parking place. Must be this rain, the receptionist says nonsensically. Have a seat, you'll be next. Rube gives me a look that I think says, thank God her husband isn't here or he'd throw a fit. Over her head, the TV continues with its silent closed caption loop about the importance of monthly breast exams, even for the guys. Her phone rings, and she sues the person on the other end, clearly not comfortable spreading her beeswax in a public place. When the call is over, she looks at me sheepishly. My granddaughter, she says. And I ask how many grandchildren she has, and she says, just the one. And I ask if she lives near, and she says the girl lives with her father on the opposite coast. She looks down the hallway to see where her husband is. She doesn't want any more questions. A nurse appears and calls the wet woman in. Rube's husband returns just in time to see her slip into the inner sanctum, and he stomps up to the window and bangs on it. What can I help you with, the receptionist asks. What the hell, he says. The receptionist slides the window closed again. For God's sake, Dean, Rube says to him, sit down. Have you gone crazy? What happened to your leg, he says, looking at me. Stop bothering people, Rube said. What is wrong with you today? 
Let me guess, he said. Car accident? Sit down, she says again. How strong is your pain? Pain can be described spatially, temporally, as pressure, punctate, incisive, constrictive, traction, or thermally. Dean knows who I am, and I now, now know who he is, Joel's father. I am both thrilled and terrified, surprised and not surprised, pulled in and repulsed in the same way we listen to bad news because it reminds us that we are still alive and we dodged whatever it was. Already, I am thinking about what I will think after whatever is about to happen happens. Can pain be described as culpatory? Dean's glare forces me to lower my head. A nurse appears and calls both our names. Rubily stands too, but Dean tells her he wants to go in alone. She gives him a cold look, and I know that everyone, including Joel, has always underestimated her. This woman has the power to destroy. Your forms, the nurse asks, but we offer up empty hands. It occurs to me that filling out the form is not really to help the doctor, but by asking us to put into words what we've always claimed we can't, we might begin to take care of ourselves. I'm going to leave, I tell her. Dean's stare has a particular electric danger. I'll make an appointment for later. We'll have to charge you for this one, the nurse says, giving me an unfriendly once-over look, and you may not get an, another appointment for a very long time. She leaves us together while she and the receptionist bend toward a computer screen. There's something punitive in the air. Streamers from July 4th wave in front of a desk fan. The phone rings and rings and rings, and there's the caustic stink of hand sanitizer. I know who you are, Dean says. The hair, the leg. What a fucking mess you are. He knows my name, too, of course, because he heard me say it when I checked in, and it's an unusual one. How long has he been thinking I am who he thinks I am? Location of your pain. Rubily taps at the receptionist's window. She's got the clipboard and the form that she wants to hand over, and then she spots the two of us deserted by the nurse. Can she see me staining the carpet as I try to spread myself thin to the point of evaporation? Her head tilts slightly. She knows she doesn't know what's going on, and Dean impatiently waves her away. The nurse escorts us down the long hall, deposits Dean in one room, deposits me one door down, and tells us both that the doctor will see you next, which I am surprised she can say with a straight face, since it can't make any sense even to her. Soon I hear Dean moaning through the thin wall, and then there's a dense, sloppy thud. Maybe at night, if the ceiling were gone, I could sleep here under the stars. I put my ear and then my mouth to the wall. Are you okay, I ask? There's no response, no sound at all. Hello, are you all right? He doesn't answer, but I can sense his heartbeat, his breath, even through the wall with its washable textured wallpaper. I know he's remembering the day after a snowstorm when he'd taken his eyes off three-year-old Joel for just a second. He swears it was only a single second, and the boy had been hit by a car and thrown into a snowbank. When Dean had looked into the snowbank, he'd seen what seemed like miles of snow tunneled down in the exact shape of the boy's body and his son at the bottom laughing and blinking fast. I thought you were dead, Dean had cried over and over, and for so many years after telling this story that the boy began to believe that he actually had died that day, that maybe he still was dead in some way. He could not look at his father without feeling his own mortality icing up in his veins. 
I leave my room and stand outside Dean's. The long hallway is empty. We have been parked out in the wilderness of this office. Who knows how long it will be before someone comes to check on us. I knock and open the door. Dean is on the floor staring at his culprit legs. One sneaker has come off in the fall. Let me get someone, I say, don't move. He raises a hand to stop me, then he's on all fours and using the drawers of the exam table to pull himself up. It's like watching an ant hoist a giant load onto its back, unfathomable, something of a miracle of nature. I'm convinced his knees can't hold him, then his hips, but he shifts the weight of his body around in waves that are practically elegant, and he stands. He's become adept at picking himself off the floor so his wife won't know he falls. He sits heavily in the chair. I retrieve the sneaker from under the desk and place it in front of him. It's obvious that he can't put, him on him, put it on himself and that it will just sit there. Joel told me everything about you, he says, said, from the minute you met. He thought you were the answer. He told me things no father should have to know, but that's the kind of person he is. I told him he was playing with fire, that she, he should quit what he was doing. And I said, why are the hell are you fucking around when you're married and have a kid? Dean must know the atlas of me by heart because he will not look at me now. He fell apart, did you know that? He says a full year he was a zombie. Everything went to hell for him. I want to tell him that Joel had been poised to topple long before we'd ever met, but I don't. Dean looks like he'd like to hit me and the only thing keeping him from doing so is the amount of energy it would require. His hands lie puffy and inert in his lap. Pain has become his own corrupt police force. I never told his mother about you, he says, shaking his head. It would have killed her. I know that when Joel's father had been racing up those cheap hotel stairs and dropping his trousers for another woman all those years ago, Joel's mother had called her son to tell him, one day in tears, the next in a kind of possessed mood, the next crying again. Your father thinks I don't know anything, she told him, and recited endless idiotic affirmations until he said that if she did that anymore, he'd hang up. Joel didn't understand how he'd ended up in the middle of his parents' misery. I also know that he told Rubily all about me and that he'd split his parents with a secret they both believed was theirs alone. She knows more than you think, I tell him, about everything. Get out, he says, his chest angling towards his knees. He thought he'd nearly killed Joel once, and then I showed up and nearly killed him all over again. Dean hears pain's echo all around him now. Back in the deserted hallway again, I'm trying to decide if I should go home. It's a funny thing about pain. It's easy to be distracted from it, and I'm aware of its fleeting absence and its return a reminder of all the ways we hurt each other. I go dutifully back to the examination room I now think of as my own, and I suspect I will hear nothing particularly useful from the doctor, certainly no cure or relief. Maybe I've only come for condolences. When I lie back on the table, I imagine myself floating in the bay as I did last summer, when heat had flattened the water and sapped it of currents. It was an endless mercury black lake, I had shut my eyes, tilted my head back slightly so the water pressed against my eardrums and made me shiver. Shadows crossed in front of the sun and fluttered against my eyelids. I squinted to see my husband's head above the water. 
It's the swimmer's tick, the mother's tick, a constant monitoring without really registering that all bodies are accounted for. So it wasn't until I had turned again to avoid the glare that it registered that what I'd seen wasn't the sleek, pale head of my husband, but the sleek, dark head of a seal, its head level with mine, smiling as if to say, hey, look, we're both out here. How fun is this? Where there are seals, there are sharks. It had been all over the news, and I shrieked. I called for my husband, who was much closer to the beach. Seal, I yelled, seal, and I saw him scan the near horizon and then begin to swim to shore. I started to swim, too, but I was almost instantly ineffectual, like I was running in sand. I was panicked, breathing too hard, watching the distance between my husband and me grow longer. I screamed that I couldn't any further. He had to help me. Come get me, please. Please come get me, please. I was laughing, too, hysterical with fear that I knew was both founded and ridiculous. I stopped trying and tread water. I had a useless legs, lungs that had seized, and I knew I couldn't win any race with a shark or a seal. While my husband kept going, it didn't turn to look at me until he was out of the water and safely on the sand. I'd become strangely calm while he had swum to save himself. I couldn't blame him. Who knows, I probably would have done the same thing, and it would have been without thinking. I knew I wouldn't say anything to him then or ever about what had just happened. The connection we draw between our pain and our punishment is our own secret. When I was out of the water, we stood on the shore looking out over the surface, seeing no head poke up, and both wondering out loud if it was possible I'd only imagined the seal, this foretelling of attack all along. <laughs>